While the children are leaving, I, I want to invite you to take uh, your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That will be the, the text of this morning's message. And um, while you're turning there, I wanted to uh, make one announcement. It's actually not an announcement, it's an opportunity for us. Um, there's a little white sheet in your, in your worship folder with two pictures on it of uh, two returning uh, freshmen from college, Eric Jameson and uh, Jared Rohr. Uh, Eric Jameson uh, has finished his first year at UCLA, and uh, Jared has finished his first year at Liberty University. And both of these individuals are exploring um, uh, possibilities of vocational ministry and um, wanted to come back, and instead of going and getting a job at In-N-Out Burger or at Starbucks, um, we thought it would be good for them to continue their education here in the context of our church, doing the ministry that they, they are interested in being a part of. So um, we're trying to raise some money so that they can do that. And um, so we're trying to raise around $7,800 and um, so that they both can, can do ministry here. Jared wants to, and is helping John with worship and putting worship services together and reading books. And, and then Eric is going to be doing um, junior high ministry. And if, if you've never been around junior high ministry in the summer, it is smoking busy. Um, so if, if you want to be a part of investing in these young men's lives, and then we're going to be taking a, an offering to support them next week. Um, again, it's just an opportunity for you if you want to invest in the life of a young person. I know that I'm here because people did this with me, and we just wanted to make it um, the need known. And so maybe take this, think about it, pray about it, talk about it with your wife. And, um, and then next week we're going to take an offering, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll make our, our, our goal, and they'll be able to to work here in ministry. So um, take that with you and consider how you might be a part of this. Uh, the, the text of, of this morning, the Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and following, 2, 11 through 22, um, for me personally has been a very enriching and fulfilling section of verses that I, I have found to be real food for my soul. And I, I hope it will be food for your soul as well. Um, it it has for us or sets out for us truth to believe, not necessarily truth to do. Um, so I hope by the time you leave, it fills your heart with a fresh sense of, of who God is in your life and who you are in Christ, and that it really makes, makes a difference. And it's not just head knowledge, but it becomes a reality in which you live. So in order for that to happen, the, the Spirit of God has to take this food and turn it into faith. Um, for us to take this food... And making any difference requires a work of the Holy Spirit, that food without spirit is like life without breath. And so I wanted to just ask if you're here with a friend or you're here with a spouse or if you're here alone, just to take a moment to pray over that person, your friend or your spouse, or if you're here alone, pray by yourself. And, and just ask God on behalf of that other person, Holy Spirit, will you take the food of truth and turn it into real faith and change life because of this morning, um, because the Spirit needs to work this morning to make that happen. So will you just take a, about 30 seconds and just pray over the person next to you? If you're uncomfortable with it, that's fine. You can pray by yourself. But um, if we don't do this and if the Spirit doesn't work, then we're wasting our time. So let's take a few minutes to intercede on behalf of one another and, and pray that prayer, and then I'll close that time of prayer. You can pray audibly.
Father, I give you thanks for the gift of, of the mind and the intellect. It is a gift, and you have intended for us to use it. But even the Bible we hold before us requires an act of the intellect for us to understand flows of arguments and how stories are woven together to get the big story and the big picture. But we also want to be humble enough and humbled of heart enough to know that with all of the intense thinking that we can do, we cannot turn this food of truth into faith. And so we ask you to energize our minds and give us a sense of dependence this morning. Lord, you have given us a gift in the affections of the heart and the emotions of the heart, and yet we cannot force love or joy to come out or generate it. Um, so we, we, we desire your spirit to take truth and, and to really make it real and to give it a sense of, of life-changing reality in the souls of each person here. And so we, we just hold our hands before you empty and, and, and just ask, please, to, to feed our minds and hearts and by your Holy Spirit to make a difference. I know that there are people here who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Um, there are those who um, feel so overburdened by sin that they wonder if they're even saved. Others who are trapped. Some who are just in doubt and disbelief. Some who are just here because they just followed their mom, dad, or, or friend here. And Lord, I just ask on behalf of the souls of those here that you would work and bring courage, encouragement, new sense of joy. Help us to know that the truth that we hold in our hands is the defining truth. It's not just one amongst many truths. It is the defining truth of life. And so help us to know that with our heads as well as our hearts. We just commit this time with to you and ask that you be gracious to us. Feed our souls and turn it into faith in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that that we do in this fallen world, and I should say people do in this fallen world, is we classify one another um, and like to classify ourselves and then we go on to attribute a certain amount of worth depending upon that classification. That is to say there's a certain pecking order that, that exists in this fallen world, and it's not something that we have to teach each other. It's something that naturally emerges in the fallen human race. Um, if you rewind your life back to elementary school, you can see it in play. Um, I rewind my life back to elementary school. I see a, a group of, of boys on the, on the playground getting ready to play um, touch football, tackle if the teacher wasn't looking, and maybe smear the queer if we were really um, zealous. I don't even know if you're supposed to say that word anymore. <laughs> it wasn't a bad word back then, but, uh, you know, the way it would work is, is uh, the group of boys would huddle around and, and it, two captains would be picked, and, and um, usually they were the, the, the best athletes and the most popular guys, and they would be picked from amongst the, uh, the democratic community, and they would go and they would pick based upon kind of the best players, and they'd go right on down the line. Um, and if you were the last one picked, it was like the position of shame. You know, it's like the last person. Everybody's chosen, and then it's you. Now, I, to my knowledge, was never picked last. I was never in the position of shame. But I don't ever remember being picked first either. So I was kind of in the, the middle group, like the middle mass. We might call it the middle class of fourth, fifth, sixth grade. That's what I was. But there was this kid named Kevin. I'll, I'll never forget his face. He was one of the nicest kids that I knew, but he was about a foot shorter than everybody else. 
And so we'd get together on the playground, we'd pick our captains, and he would inevitably be the last person picked. Every time he was like in the position of shame. And sometimes if there was an odd number, he wouldn't even get picked. He'd be like relegated to the sideline, you know, and he'd just stand there and watch us play. You know, the position of shame. There's this like natural pecking order that emerged and there was a sense of worth based upon where you fell in that lineup from top to bottom. Um, Nobody wants to be at the bottom, but we just kind of adjust and figure out where we stand in the, in the scheme of things. And um, it is not good to be at the, at the bottom or feeling beneath. But I'll tell you, I feel a twinge of that um, even now when I get on board an airplane. Now, this is somewhat uh, facetious, but there's a little tinge of it that's true. You know, they make you walk through first class. <laughs> now, why don't, honestly, just put the plank up to the back so that you don't have to walk through the first class and see those really big, luxurious seats, kind of mini sofas, and people are drinking their champagne, and they're reading Forbes magazine, and, and they make you pass through that, and, 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 you know, I get people occasionally, I don't even like, I don't like to fly normally, but it's even worse, so you have to walk through first class, and I'll get this lady that'll look at me, and she'll give me what, what, what is a pity look, you know, she looks how tall I am, and it's like, poor coach boy, that's what she's thinking. <laughs> You know, walk through first class, and then you pass this barrier, you know, where you go into coach, and all of a sudden the seats shrink like by 10, you know? And as Murphy's Law would have it, my seat is almost always in the middle of three seats between two hefty men, you know? So I try to cram my 6'3 structure into this little little tiny chair, and, and there I am in coach, and then at some point in the flight, the, the, the flight attendant comes back from first class and with kind of a passing glance and a, and a flip of the hair, she shuts first class. <laughs> and then while they're getting sh- chicken Florentine in the front because you can smell it, we're in the back and they're chucking peanuts at us like we're monkeys behind bars at a zoo. <laughs> you know, that's just kind of how you feel. It's like first class, Coach. There's just a sense of classification there. You know, they get the good life, and then we get the coach life. Now, as a, honestly, I would not pay for a first-class ticket, but there's a part of me that when you smell the smells and you see the people, especially the wide chairs, love seats in the front seat. That's the part of me wants that. Well, we like to classify. We just do. And um, oftentimes attribute worth to that. Um, we classify people in various ways. Um, athletic ability, uh, mental gifting, how much money you have, where you live in the city, um, your ethnicity, um, your background, the mistakes you've made. And you just kind of classify, and, and we attribute worth to those classifications, and we do that to ourselves. And what's interesting is you dive into the Old Testament, and you realize that there are classifications there too. That there are at least two classes of people in the Old Testament, and there are more, but at very least two you find that there is this special nation, this people that God has chosen as, according to Deuteronomy 7, 6, as his chosen, chosen treasured possession, chosen of all the other nations. They're special. They're given special blessing and special privileges. And then there's the rest of the group, you know, the plebeians, the, the nations around, what the Hebrews called the goyim or, or the nations, the other guys. So there's even this outside and inside in the Old Testament, and part of that was by design. Because when God gave Moses these Ten Commandments and the other 613 laws, um, a lot of them were designed to create a distinctiveness between the Jewish people and the rest of the nations. 
a distinctiveness that would create a sense of separation. So laws and regulations were given so that they wouldn't marry those on the outside. Um, there were laws and regulations related to food so that they wouldn't eat the same food as those on the outside, so that they wouldn't dress in the same dress as those on the outside, so they wouldn't make covenants and contracts with those on the outside. So there's this strong separation between those on the inside, the Jewish people, the treasured possession of God, and the rest of the nations. And most of us are the rest of the nations. And there were even classifications within that special group. So you had the priestly caste, the Levites who could go farther into the temple and do more things and have more privileges with God than the rest of the tribes of Israel. There was this sense of classification, a, a divinely instituted kind of segregation. Now, what I want to say is that that was not an end in and of itself. It was a means to a greater end, that God narrowed the categories with the intent of eventually expanding them. And that brings us to kind of the heartbeat of, of this book called Ephesians. It's kind of the mission verse of the plan of God and what he was doing in narrowing and then widening is, is found in chapter 1, verse 11, when, which says that, and right before that, it talks about the purpose of God that he set forth in Christ as a plan. This is his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on things on earth. So what was divided before Jesus, God intends by his own plan and purpose to reunite. That's his big plan. So the separation and class distinction you find in the Old Testament, God is now closing and unifying, bringing into one. And that brings us to where we fit into that. Now, there may be a few people who have a Jewish lineage, but most of us are just raw Gentiles, which means we're non-Jewish. And Paul talks about in these verses that I, I asked you to open to, in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, he talks about, how the Gentiles fit into that plan. The rest of the people, um, the rest of us who have a non-Jewish heritage. And in this passage, he talks to us about who we were, kind of clearly laid out in three different steps. Who we were, what Christ has done to change that class distinction, and who we are now because of him. Who we were, what Christ has done to change it, and who we are now. Those are kind of the three parts. Now, he starts by telling us who we were. Listen to this. It says, therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles, he's talking to the Ephesian church, which is predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish people. He's talking to us here in America, Fairfield. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision uh, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember, second time he says remember, that you were at that time, before you believed, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, with having no hope and without God in the world. Now put that on your resume. This is not a flattering statement that he's asking us to remember who we were. Strong words, separated, alienated, strangers. He's telling us, who are non-Jewish people, to remember what we were by nature of being a Gentile. That we had no familial claim to the Messiah or Christ or to the promises of Abraham 
we were outside this community called Israel. That's, that's where we stand in the scheme of things, and as a result of that, we're without hope and we're without God in the world. That means there are no special privileges to where who we were. Now, let me get, kind of give that a contrast. We kind of know in our culture, based upon family and even being United States citizens, that there are certain um, connections with family and larger groups that give us privileges, rights, or entitlements. So on a family level, my, you know, my, my daughter Allie's going to be 12 this year. She knows that because she is my daughter, she has certain privileges that other people who are not part of my family uh, don't have. So she knows that she has a special love for me, that I uh, will provide for her, that I will protect her, that I will love her in ways that I won't necessarily love kids outside my family. And at some point, if Deanna and I die, or I should say when we die, I just hope it's later rather than sooner, uh, there will be some portion of our very small holdings that she'll get because she's our daughter. That's part of the benefit and the privilege of, of being connected to a group or a family. Um, we know that in, in our citizenship as, as U.S. citizens. That comes with certain rights, certain entitlements, as well as certain privileges. Now, I was reading a story that kind of emphasized this this last week. It was a, a story in which there's this teacher from Boston, Boston, Massachusetts. And back in uh, 2010, last year, um, he decided he was going to go to South Korea and teach as part of a, a mission thing, um, a Christian guy. Only when he was in South Korea, he decided he was going to go to North Korea. just had a heart for the North Koreans. You know, they're our best friends, right? And so he crossed the border, but he crossed the border illegally. So he was arrested by our best friends, and he was sentenced to eight years hard time. His name is, I think it's Agilon Gomez. You can look it up. Just Google it. You'll see the, read the story. It's pretty f fantastic. Anyway, they, they, they convicted him and sentenced him to eight years hard time for crossing the border illegally. Now, as you well know from reading papers, listening to the news media and so forth, the United States doesn't take too kindly to its citizens being taken captive, held hostage, or treated unjustly, typically. So what did we do? Last August, we sent Jimmy Carter over there. Former President Jimmy Carter. Oh, no, no, it worked. They sent him over to get some no-name guy from North Korea because he's a citizen. That's pretty awesome. And he got him back. He, he came back. Like, we wouldn't do that for a, for a citizen of, of Nigeria or Kenya, certainly not France. <laughs> I'm just speaking of the American attitude here. But one of our citizens, the idea is that there are certain rights or privileges or blessings or benefits of being a part of something like that. There's certain privileges and benefits of being a Jewish person, an Israelite. And Paul is saying, we have none of that. We have none of it whatsoever. No claims. Not you, not me. And he's reminding us, remember, that that's where you came from. Remember, twice he says it. Don't ever forget that you were on the outside looking in. You were in last class, not even coach. On the big ship of redemption, you were on the outside. The Jewish people were on the inside. That's, that's where you were. There were no 
familial privileges and benefits that you can lay claim to at all, promises or, or connections with the Messiah. You're outside. We're outside. He's reminding us of that. Now, it sounds kind of harsh and humiliating for him to say that, but I guarantee you it's for a very positive and wonderful purpose. Because you forget that you were completely on the outside in the valley of the Gentiles uh, with no claim whatsoever to the privileges of Israel. Then it just goes to show how far God's love went in bringing you to where we are now. Its purpose is to make you amazed and astonished at the level of grace that God has extended to people on the outside in the last class classification of life. You and me. Now, that's who we were, separated, cut off, excluded. No one likes to be that place, the position of shame, but he's saying that's where you were. But we read on, and we read that there's a massive difference or change that takes place in those classifications. This is verse 14, what Jesus did. But now, there's a huge shift from remember when to, but now, in the present tense, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down um, in his flesh the, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This great Trinitarian verse there at that verse 18. Through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now to those who really kind of get in their heart level that I, I'm on the out, I was on the outside completely undeserving, that there's no entitlement whatsoever. Which is kind of hard, by the way, for a culture which is increasingly entitlement. Um, I don't want to say it. It's attitude pervades, especially the younger generation. They've said people feel like they're entitled to everything and don't want to work for anything. Um, well, for those who really understand that we're not, God doesn't owe us anything. Anything. He doesn't owe you good health. He doesn't owe you a car. He doesn't owe you a house, a fine education, or even a future. He doesn't owe you anything, especially as a Gentile person. I mean, I, I hail from uh, German and Scottish roots with a, with a little bit of Scandinavian and English mixed in there. I am a European mutt, a Gentile of Gentiles. And to really know that I'm, I was on the outside and to come to grips with you were on the outside too. Last class, you're in the position of shame. Everybody else is picked. To, to really feel that, well, then you get to these verses in uh, verse 14, and, and it's like a warm light that kind of floods into the dark and lonely valley of the Gentiles that, what? You, you included us too. And you, you notice it's included us. Over and over again, it says that he has now made us one. Now, you might ask, well, how close did he bring us? Did he bump us up, you know, from fourth class to third class? The second class? That may sound great, but that's not what he does. 
according to what he says here, is that God, in an act of unbelievable grace through Christ, he places us on equal footing with his chosen treasured possession, the people of Israel. Equal footing. And he has broken down what divided that class, two-class thing, and he has made us one. He says it over and over again, and Jesus is the key to it. So verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. First class and coach. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So now it's one man, not two. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. One body through the cross. So that what was once two has now become one. And Christ does that, or God does that through Christ in three ways in this text. By a work of creation, by a work of reconciliation, and abolishing something. Now, in former messages on this particular um, book, we've already talked about the fact that in Christ, he created a brand new people of both groups, and that he has reconciled both of those people to each other and to God. We've talked about those two, so let me focus on the third one. That one of the things that Christ has done in his death and resurrection is that he has abolished something. That is, he has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Now, actually, I really need to back up here. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. It's a way of talking about his death. The dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility, as I said at the opening part of this message, that there were these rules and regulations that were given to give a distinctiveness to the Jewish people and therefore a separation to them. And as you would expect from a fallen heart that's given privilege, oftentimes in the Jewish mind, I'm not saying every Jew felt this way, but there would be almost a sense where the Gentiles were second class or even subhuman people. There's writings in Jewish, um, uh, there's, speech and Jewish writings that talk about the Gentiles being the Gentile dogs. Um, so there is easily a sense of self-righteousness. We're the chosen people of God, and the rest of the people are subhuman. So there's a sense of hostility. On the flip side of it, oftentimes the Gentiles would come, people surrounding the Jews and their relationships would come to resent that, um, that they would feel suspicious, um, often think of Jewish people as inhospitable, as perhaps haters, condescension, or condescenders, self-righteous. And it creates this sense of hostility. And that hostility between those two groups has been deadly at certain points of history, both in Roman history and in modern history. Anti-Semitism didn't come out of nowhere. There is a, a hostility there that erupts from time to time. Well, here we're told that that hostility, the wall that separates, has been broken down by what Christ did in his death. Now, how did he break it down? How did he break down the hostility? Well, he tells us here in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The very things that were given to create distinctiveness and separation, it says here that Christ has abolished. They're no longer in effect. In fact, one way of translating this word that we have here as abolished is to make inoperative. No longer functions the way it used to function. When I, what comes to my mind when I think of that is the, the mothball fleet out in, the, out in the bay. They still exist, 
At one time, they functioned. They were steaming off for the Navy or whatever other place they were going to do and function. But they were operative. Now they sit in the bay, no longer functioning as they originally were intended to function. I believe that's what's in view here, is the, the way in which they were originally intended to function, now they have become inoperative by the nature of Christ coming. Now, he doesn't explain exactly how uh, he abolishes it, but I will say from other things that Paul has written, especially in Galatians, that Jesus doesn't abolish the law in the sense that he contradicts it or destroy it. But he abolishes it by fulfilling it. Maybe a way of thinking about this is, you know, if you buy a car and you're in contract with your lending company for such and such amount of dollars, let's say $15,000, you're in contract until that contract is fulfilled. But once the last payment's made, you don't continue making payments any longer because the contract has been fulfilled. Now, the way that the New Testament looks at this law given by God through Moses, Ten Commandments and the other altogether, 613, is that it was prophetic. As it looked forward, it anticipated. It was a shadow of something to come. And when it was filled up, when the contract was fulfilled, then it was no longer in force. It was provisional, temporal. So, for example, you have in the laws, you have talks of sacrifice, of priest, and of temple. But ultimately, when the true sacrifice, the true priest, and the true temple came, well, then it was no longer necessary. It becomes obsolete and operative. That even in the moral commands of the old covenant of Moses, these rules and regulations of thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal and so forth, even that looked forward and was going to be fulfilled by someone who would keep every requirement of that law. And the only person who has ever done that is Christ. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of this law. Fulfilled it. Therefore, it no longer is in force or operative like it once was. Even the curses of the old law that were, um, that were pronounced on anybody who would disobey God's law. I mean, it, you get these commands, and if you don't do it, there's all these curses that are lined up with it too. Well, Jesus, the only perfect one who lived out the law perfectly, also took and fulfilled the curse in the sense that he took it in our place. So that it no longer has this regulating, binding influence on God's people. No longer regulates. It no longer condemns. And so in that sense, he abolishes it. And here's the thing. If you don't really get all that theology, um, here's the thing. is that he then becomes the center of our relationship. The regulating center of the family, of the church, of Christianity is not a bunch of rules and regulations from the past, but is Jesus himself. He becomes the center point of this new family that he's created. That's why it's in his blood. So he got rid of those distinctive things that created the class distinction. They're no longer valid. Now, if the church and you and I as individuals don't just come to an understanding of that rationally, but actually believe that really the center of our relationship, the center of what makes us family, 
um, which makes the two into one, is now Christ. He's the center. He's the foundation stone. He's the hub at the center of the wheel. He's what gives us our new identity and therefore our worth. Our only class is determined by the fact that we're connected to him. Then it changes the way we relate to each other, and it changes the nature of everything in terms of how we understand family, if he is truly at the center of it. Because what that does, when it's no longer a regulation-based or a class-based kind of relationship, but a Christ-based, Christ-centered, then you can have someone like a Palestinian Christian and a Jewish Christian breaking bread at the same table. Because it's no longer their traditions or their ethnicity that determines their identity or their worth or their family. But the fact that both have been paid for by the blood of Christ, both Jew and Gentile, and stand around the table by grace and grace alone. The classes don't matter anymore. That's why Paul elsewhere will say there's no more Jew and Gentile, there's no more uh, slave or free or, or male, female. These distinctions by which we have established worth, they don't matter anymore in Christ. So you can have, in principle, and I believe in reality if it's believed, that if Christ really is the center of the family and, it's, and it's, there's a recognition that it's on the basis of his blood and grace alone we're able to gather around and celebrate and worship, then you can have someone from the older generation gather with somebody with a younger generation break bread together because it's not their generational identities that give them a sense of self. It's Christ who's at the center of those two brothers, older and younger, or, or the traditionalist and the contemporary Christian can break bread around the table because it's not their styles that define them anymore. It's Christ who defines them. You can have the strong brother and the weak brother at the same table because it's not their strength or their weakness that defines them any longer. It's Christ. You can have someone who's lived a relatively okay life, some sin, and someone who's an ex-con gathering at the same table. Because what makes, gives you identity and worth is no longer your past or your failures, it's Christ. That those class distinctions and the worth that we associate with those things don't matter anymore. In fact, it's when you bring those class distinctions of the fallen world back into that sense of family that we tear at the very core and the fabric of what it means to be Christian. You know, to really get to the point where each of us really believes that, you know, the only thing that really defines me, it's not my name, Deckard, it's not my family tree any longer, it's not my past mistakes, it's not where I stand in the social strata of things, how much I have in the bank or in stocks, it doesn't matter because I, through Christ, I stand on the basis of his blood for me, and I stand by grace alone. And that, taken to heart, not only provides freedom, but it provides a sense of family. But when we allow those distinctions to come back in, we're denying the essence of who we are. That our bloodline ultimately goes back to Christ himself. Just to know and believe and have that as our not just as something we say or a doctrinal statement or something that we affirm, but it doesn't take root. It takes root. It changes everything. It changes the way you look at yourself. That you're, I'm no longer identifying myself as strong or smart or that's not where my worth is or the class that I have achieved. I stand free and loved in Christ as a part of the family.
That's who he's made us to be. That's what Jesus did on the basis of his life. A new sense of family, something brand new, but based and rooted in him. Well, that's what he did. So who are we now? Who are we now? And that's the last part of this. Paul writes, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, someone who, again, really gets the first part of what Paul says, really remember that we were in last class and there was no laying claim to any privileges whatsoever, outsiders, to really know that, which is part of the purpose of trying to remember it. Verse 19 becomes kind of a, a golden birth certificate. At least that's, that's, how, that, that's how I read it. This, this verse is precious to me. Because it tells me who I am. And it tells you who you are if you're a follower of Christ. That you are no longer the strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Now we're part of the commonwealth. With all the rights and privileges there too. Because of Christ. Um, and members of the household of God. Members, members in that particular time were people that lived in the house. Family members. He's saying, you've been now made family. Now, now, Now the stretch of distance between outside strangers alienated and separated to now you're in his household is an immeasurable distance of love and grace. And for that to actually sink into the human heart, which is what faith is all about, I mean, if it just kind of bounces off and says, and, and, and you feel absolutely nothing, or you get, there's no sense of, that's, that's true. Then it hasn't been believed yet. Part of God's household, part of his family, that means, that's me, me, means we're a part of now his habitation. We're part of his, he's invited us and brought us into his residence. Means he's seated us at his table. We eat his food. On equal footing. You know, the, us Gentiles, me of German and Scottish stock, we're not put at the kids' table. You know, like at Thanksgiving, you have a kid table and an adult table, the important table. Or like at a wedding, you have the commoners that sit at the rest of the tables, and then there's the head table where all of the wedding party sits. I like to think that on, at this table, it doesn't matter anymore. He says, this is my table, and it's big enough for all of you, all in one. I like to think that there's a little, a little placard on each tape, table, a little plate that says Dan Deckard, or it says Sue, or it says John. Well, here's your seat, and it's at the head table. That's where he's bringing. That's where he has brought you. That's who you are. And not only are we brought into his house, but the next section says that we become his house, his new temple. We become a dwelling place for God. Not just the Jewish people, but now in Christ, both groups in one. Which is why he closes with him, with in him you also are being built together. So that we're part of his family, intimate family, and then he inhabits us as his personal house. You can't get more intimate than, you, than that. 
And he's speaking in the present tense. He's not talking about some future reality. He's talking about it right now. This is who you are. Now, at some point, you'll be given a physical body, a resurrected body with physical eyes, and you'll see it. But this is who we already are as the family of Christ, united by his blood and indwelt by his presence, and we are his family. Now, you, you might say at this point, that just that, that, that doesn't, that, does that really make a difference? Does believing that truth really make a difference? And I believe it makes the most foundational difference. There's a lot of talk these days about, because of the wedding, Prince William, right? There had to be a time in his life where he knew he wasn't Prince William. I venture to say when he was in his mother's womb, he didn't know he was a a king, future king. And when he came out, he didn't automatically come out with a crown on his head knowing he was a, a prince. You know, even as a toddler, I, I think he probably didn't grasp that, that he, he is part of a, a monarchical line that some date back to the ninth century. I mean, that's pretty awesome, actually, to think about. Some would say it goes back further. But at some point, he became self-aware of who he was. Now, let me ask you, did his knowledge of his royalty make a difference in his life? And does it make a difference? Listen, his whole reality is defined by his royalty. His marriage was defined by his royalty. His personality, how he conducts himself, how he walks, how he speaks, who he hangs out with. His whole world is defined by the fact that he is of royal descent. If you really believe in your heart of hearts that I sit at the king's table, that I'm part of God's family, and the only monarchy that really matters is the monarchy from the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that he has invited you to his table, and you are princes and princesses in Christ, And you really believe that from the bottom of your heart, that this is who we really are, members of the household of Almighty God and His holy temple. If you really believe that, it changes the nature of how you see yourself in reality all around you. Those old classifications that people want to push on you to define you and give you a sense of worth no longer exist because you know who you are. That's what this chapter, these verses are about, so that you can know who you are and I can know who I am. And that this is the defining reality for the Christian. Not what the world says of us or what sometimes we mistakenly think of ourselves. I'll tell you what. The house of Windsor can have their day in the sun in this fallen world. But you brother and sister, are of the house of Christ. And that's eternal. And whatever level in this world the house of Windsor has in terms of the class standard, I guarantee you, as a son and daughter of Christ, of God the Father, it is immeasurably higher in his measurement. 
And that's the reality that we need to live in light of. I'm not going to ask you to do anything with this truth because this is not a truth to do. This is a truth to believe. It's a truth to remember. Each day to remember this is who I am, not what they say I am. It is a truth to be enjoyed, to be celebrated, to sing about, to praise God about, to write songs about, to kneel down about, because it is the defining truth of the Christian life. And that's, that's more than anything. I think what Paul prayed that we would get and what I hope we get is that this is who we are. And this is our chapter. This is our heritage. God traversed the valley of the sin and death, and he traversed the valley of the Gentiles to bring us home, to make us sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. I hope that that particular truth, again, this is a truth to be believed, not done, believed, that as you come to the Lord's table, which points back and points forward, points us back to when the king laid down his life, to make us one family. But it also points us forward to a big table in which we will share with him, the king of kings, the only monarch that really matters. So as you come to the table this morning, I want you to be thinking, do I see myself this way? Do I live in this reality? And if not, just pray, Lord, help me to understand this is who I am. It brings freedom. It brings a sense of celebration, gratitude, a sense of self-worth in the proper sense of the word. So, I'm going to pray for this and just ask, please, just meditate upon this truth. Like verse 19 is our golden birth certificate of who we are now in Christ. And let it fill your heart. Let it fill your soul as you come to the Lord's table. I'm going to pray, and, and as I do, if I could have the small group leaders who are going to serve us, just come forward, and, and they want to serve you and remind you of who you are um, in Christ. And if you're new with us, just come as the music's being played. And... Um, and savor what God has done for you and also where we're headed. Father, I am so grateful for your word and I'm grateful for the amazing, immeasurable, astounding, unsearchable grace that you have shown to us where we were all on the outside in the last class and you have taken down the dividing wall and made first class and coach one people. And I just pray that our hearts would just know that truth of who we really are not what the world says of us, but what you say of us and what you have done for us in Christ. May these, these elements of bread and cup, may they be powerful and potent reminders of who we are, the reminders that we're forgiven, reminders that we are yours, that we're your family, and someday we'll sit around a table with you. So meet with us now, Lord, in the spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen.